Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I want to amen what Jonathan said. I, I decided this week as we read in Matthew 9 that when, I was, when I'm tempted to complain about not being able to move and get around places because there's so many people and so much traffic, then instead of complaining, I was just, I'm just going to pray the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Amen. Uh, so good morning again. My name is Drew. If you weren't here when I introduced myself earlier, we are continuing a series this morning that's going to go throughout this Advent season and even into the new year. What we're doing is we're looking at uh, the places all throughout, primarily the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, where you find this phrase repeated, that the first will be last and the last will be first. That those who exalt themselves will actually, at the end of the day, be, hum- be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we come this morning to a passage in Matthew chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 1. If you have a Bible in front of you, you'll notice that at the, or excuse me, at the end of Matthew 19, which is the story of the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19 actually ends with the phrase, and then we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and you'll notice that in verse 16, we see that phrase again, the first will be last and last will be first. So this passage, this story, both begins and ends, because those chapter headings are artificial, uh, it begins and ends with this theme, and so this is a very important passage as we, as we look at each of these statements together. Let's begin reading in Ma- Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 1. This is a parable, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And going out again about the sixth hour... And about the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then comes the statement. So, this whole parable is illustrious of this. So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Okay. So, the first are last. And the last are first, and that is because, and this is why we're doing this during Advent, Jesus Christ, who was the first of all, made himself last. That's the message of Christmas. God humbled himself and came into this world to rescue his people from sin and death. It was an act of cosmic, cosmic humility. An act of cosmic humility. So cosmic that it shattered the world in many ways. Cosmic humility, and therefore only the humble get in on it. And that is why Augustine said that the essence of Christianity is, first of all, what? Do you remember? Humility. You've, uh, you failed the pop quiz. 
First of all, humility. And second of all, humility. And third of all, humility. The whole thing is humility. Chris Hutchison, who's a pastor in our denomination, he wrote a book on humility, which is great. He says humility is the alpha and the omega of the gospel at work in God's people. It is the start and the finish and everything in between. And so we want to talk about humility throughout this Advent season. And so let's define it because we've done that, but it's probably good to come back to that again. And we're going to use Andrew Murray's definition or his cluster of definitions in his wonderful little book on humility. I would recommend it highly to you. He says, humility is the disappearance of the self in the vision and understanding that God is all. In another place, he defines humility as the displacement of the self in the enthronement of God. So humility is self-forgetfulness. It is the disappearance of the self, the displacement of self coming to the firm realization and resolution that God is all and therefore I am nothing. Now this morning, we want to make a very specific connection between that hard attitude of humility and the gospel reality of grace. Humility and grace, because the two are connected in significant ways. And Christianity, of course, is grace, not works. Christian, Chris, Christmas, Christmas is grace. It is God coming all the way to us, right? All the way from heaven into earth, and then all the way to the cross, and all the way to us. And if it's grace, then humility is the only option. It's the only response. It's the only thing that makes sense. The only proper way to interact with the reality of Christmas. If grace is the root, then humility is the fruit. And so we're praying that we would, in light of all that God has done for us, become people of humility because that is the kind of people the world so desperately needs. But here's the question. If you want to, if you want to kind of do a, a, um, a check, you know, a, a look under the hood of your life this morning to know where you are in regards to these things, here's a question I would have you ponder and maybe find an answer to. How do you react when you don't get what you think you deserve? How do you react when you don't get what you think you deserve? Because that's what this parable is about. Being able to diagnose whether your heart is truly resting itself in God's grace or whether secretly maybe, in some way maybe you weren't aware of, you are truly trusting in your good works, whether you're resting in God's grace or in your good works. That's what, that's what this text is about. And so we want to talk about grace and humility. And to do that, we're going to look at three things. It's pretty our typical kind of flow. I want you to see, and we're going to talk about how the world that we live in is pure meritocracy. The world is pure meritocracy, and you see it reflected here in this text, in this story. Secondly, in contrast to the world, the kingdom, and because the text begins, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God is like here. The world is pure meritocracy, but the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is grace. And therefore, what happens at Christmas is Christmas is this cosmic, because it is a cosmic act of humility, it's a cosmic reversal. So that the first become last and the last become first, okay? That's where we're going to go this morning as we look at this text together. So first, let's look. The world, the world we're taught here first is pure meritocracy because it is the collective project of the pride of fallen humanity. So the first and greatest commandment is to have no other gods before the Lord. And therefore, pride is the first and greatest sin because it seeks to put the self ahead of God. Humility, as we've said, says, I'm nothing, God is all. Pride says, no, 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 God is nothing and I am all. And this is true of 
all of us to one degree or another, we are sinfully motivated by the desire to serve ourselves and protect our place at the center of our own existence. And this self-worship is the root of all the other sins that we struggle with in our lives. Lust and greed and envy and anger and indifference. And it results in self-reliance and entitlement. And when you don't get what you think you deserve, resentment and anger. This is the exact case here in Jesus' story, okay? Let's look at the story for a minute. A man went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed with those workers on a fair price, a denarius for a day's work. That was the typical working wage. He was being, you know, he was being very generous to them. They, they made that agreement. 12 hours of work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., that was the work day. This was the typical arrangement. I mean, the only reason we know what a denarius is is that it was the standard pay for a day's wages, okay? So everything's good. Until later in the day, the master went back out to find more workers. There was more work that needed to be done. So around 9 a.m., so after three hours of work, he went back and he hired more workers. And then he did it again at noon and hired them for six hours of, of work. And then again at 5 p.m. he went with only an hour left in the workday. And so some worked 12, some worked 9, some worked 6, some worked 1. And at the end of the day, at 6 p.m., when it was time to cut off work, some of the workers had worked that full 12 hours, and others had worked lesser amounts. Now, if you were one of the guys who had worked for 12 hours, and you saw all this take place, what would your expectation be? Well, when it came time to pay up, the master instructed his foreman to start with the last group and that he hired at 5 p.m., he brought those guys in. He paid them a full denarius, a full day's pay for only one hour of work. And you can imagine the group that was hired at 6 a.m. thought, wow, if that's, what, if that's what one hour gets paid, if that's what, if that's, what that's worth, what do, you imagine, what do you think we're going to get? We've been here for 12 hours. But when their time came, they were paid the same amount, a single denarius. For 12 hours work, they were not happy. Now, if you're being honest this morning, remember this is a place we should be honest. If you're being honest, you probably sympathize with them, don't you? A little? We live in a world where the first are first and the last are last, and it all depends upon performance. Uh, and your place in the hierarchy is determined by how deserving you are. If you do more or do better than others, then it's built in that you deserve more or better in return. And if you do less, if you do worse, then you deserve less. This is just the way the world works. Philip Yancey, he writes that like city dwellers who no longer notice the polluted air, we breathe in the atmosphere of ungrace. Unaware. Every institution, he says, runs on ungrace. That is on performance. We learn early on. We learn early and often that the way to get ahead in the world, the way to get through life, that you've got to earn your way. And so when it comes to God, then, we're training, we're being trained by the culture we live in and by our own, the, kind of the bent of our own hearts, that we, when, when it comes to God, we think in terms of our work, our performance. We do things for God as, as a wage, like these people here. You obey God, and then he pays you back. He gives you what you deserve in light of all that you've done for him. You earn, you earn your standing. You do the work, then God pays up. And by, you, you do what you have to do, and then God gives you the life that you think you're owed. But, of course, what happens when you do the work 
and you do it all right, and you've done everything that he's asked you to do, what happens when you do that and then you don't get what you think you deserve? Or worse, what about when someone else who is far less deserving than you are gets the same treatment as you do? Or worse, what about when you do all the work and it goes bad for you and someone else doesn't do the work and it goes good for them? The workers here in this story, they grumbled, they complained, they accused the master of wrong, and that response unmasked their pride. That's Jesus' point. They saw themselves as more deserving than the others who had not worked as long as they had. They were not able to rejoice at the master's generosity to these latecomers. They resented it, and that means there's something off in their hearts because of that. They made accusations against this man's character, because they believed so profoundly in the meritocracy, not grace, and they preferred it that way. They wanted, they wanted to live in a world, they wanted an arrangement where the first are first and the last are last. And the lesson that Jesus means to teach us this morning is that your heart and my heart, we want it that way too. But why? See, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, why? What doesn't, it seems so much better the other way. Why would we prefer that way? Well, for one, the human heart is relentlessly self-exalting. You want to be first. That's, that's pride, and pride is, by definition, competitive. Being good is not enough for a proud person. They have to be better than other people. They have to win. That's the whole point. Nobody's trying to be good. Everybody's just trying to be better than somebody else. But also, and I think this is the main thing, if life is indeed wages and not gift, if it's wages, then there's some assurance that if you work hard enough, and if you do it well enough, then you can control your life. You can ensure the outcomes that you so desperately want. I mean, if you're a good parent, and if you can do that, if, I mean, if you can be a good parent, then you can have some assurance that your kids will turn out okay. If you work hard at work, right, then you'll be able to provide for your family because your performance reviews will come back good and you'll climb the corporate ladder and all that will work out, you know, work out well. You can do life without God with you at the center instead if, if the meritocracy is true. But the other lesson is, is this, that it's all a charade because with God there are no wages, that's the whole point Jesus is making here, is it may work that way in the world, but it doesn't work that way with God. There are no wages. It's all grace. There is no meritocracy. That's an illusion. There are no works that make you deserving. There is no amount of effort that can ensure that life goes the way you want it to. The group who worked for one hour and got mercy, right? You with me? Amen? That's it. They got mercy. What about the group that worked 12 hours? They got mercy too. And that's the point. Life is not wages, it's gift, it's grace, and nobody is owed grace. So secondly, what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of pulling back the curtain on the way, we, the, way the world works, which is really an illusion, and he says, but the kingdom of heaven, which is the real reality, the kingdom of heaven runs, runs on grace, the kingdom of heaven is grace, Christianity is gospel, we cannot climb our way up to God through moral effort, God must come down to us. That's the message of Christmas. He comes all the way. He does all the work. It's not a cooperative effort. The world is so stuck that rescue had to come from outside the world. You see that? The power 
had the power, a power outside of the world had to come into the world to rescue the world. And God had to step out of heaven and come into the world. That's the claim of Christmas. And you, you, I have great news for you this morning. You are so corrupt and enslaved and radically sinful at your core that there is no goodness or power that comes from you that can make you right with God. But there is one who has come who can. And righteousness is a gift. It's not a wage. The gospel reveals, we're told by, Paul, by the Apostle Paul in Romans 16, a righteousness of God that comes through faith, not works, through faith, and it's God's power for salvation. So Paul to Titus, he said this, we read, Jesus saves us, just let this sit on your soul. He saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We are saved, this is what Christianity claims, that we are saved by the works that Jesus came into the world to do for us, not by our own works. He came to live a life of obedience that we owe to God. He came to die on a cross for our sins, which is what God owes to us. And all of that's from God, not us. It's from God to us. This is the way grace works. It is from God to us, not from us to God. It is one-way love in the direction away from God towards us. So the only way into the kingdom, then, is to bend your knee to grace. To stop trying to earn a wage, to receive righteousness, and everything else is a gift. And that's, that's faith. That's what we mean by faith. And our theme for today is faith. So Paul, in Romans chapter 4, later in that same letter... He says, and I, I think this is so helpful, listen to the way he phrases this. He says, to the one who works. So he says, if you, if you just are determined to make it all about your works, here's what he says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And he's saying, you don't want to relate to God like that. But then he says in the next verse, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, his faith is counted as righteousness. You can achieve or you can receive. And faith is the opposite of works. So, so Eugene Peterson, he noted that, forgive the kind of theological parlance here, but he says he noted that we tend to be Augustinian in theory, but then Pelagian in practice. Augustus and Pelagius, if you're not familiar with church history, they, they were two leaders in the church that squared off in the fourth century. And Augustus said, salvation is all God. It is 100% God's effort. It's sovereign grace, right? Pelagius came along and he said, no, well, salvation, I think, is a cooperative effort between God and man. And he was a big proponent of free will and, and kind of the, you know, all of that stuff. And what Pearson means is, is we tend to say that we believe in grace, but then immediately go away and act like we don't really believe it. We bring, we, we say, oh yeah, works can't save, but then we go away and we kind of bring works back in, in the back door. We say it all depends upon God, but then we act like it all depends upon us. We confess that God is all and we are nothing, but then all of our emotions, and it really shows up in the, in the emotional life, I think, all of our emotions, the guilt, the anxiety, the regret, even the fear sometimes, those things so operative, if they're so profoundly operative in our life, they suggest that we really think, that we really think that we are all and that God is nothing. See? And the reason, the reason this is so hard, and this is going to sound weird, but the reason this is so hard is grace is scary. Like I said, we would prefer, we know the meritocracy. 
We'd prefer it that way. But grace is scary. It sounds strange, but it's true. And here's the thing. Grace is scary because it's sovereign. Isn't that the lesson here? That if we, if we are saved by grace, not because of works done by us, but according to God's mercy, well, if it's really all about God's mercy, then listen to what God says about his mercy. In Romans 9.15 and Exodus 33, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Do you know what that means? It means that God is merciful, but he is sovereign with his mercy, which means he has the right to be merciful when and where and with whoever he chooses. Sovereignty means that God's reasons for all that he does come from within his own person, not from anything external to him. He loves because he loves, not because there's something in us that's lovable. And this is Jesus' point. In this story, the all-day workers make their accusations. Look there in verses 13 and 14, and then the master responds. He says, friend, I'm not doing you wrong. I haven't wronged you. I haven't done something wrong here. Take what belongs to you and go. Look what he says. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? You see that? So what the master did here, giving the same payment to those who worked only one hour and also to those who worked the full 12-hour day, it was not wrong. It was not unfair. Nobody was mistreated. Everybody got more than they deserved. The one-hour workers for sure, but the all-day folks did too. The master went out early and found them and put them to work in his vineyard so they could earn a wage. We are saved by grace, and grace, because it is grace, is sovereign. God has every right to do whatever he chooses. And that's got to sit upon your soul. It's not wrong for him to save some and not others. It's not wrong for Jesus to say to the thief on the cross next to him, today, you're going to be with me in paradise, even though it's the last moments of his life. It's not wrong for him to give more to someone who is less deserving than to the person who has a higher performance rating because all of it is grace. And so let's admit the truth. Let's admit the truth. We say we love grace, but at least a small part of us, we prefer the meritocracy because grace leaves you with no bargaining chips. No moral high ground to stand on. It leaves you with nothing that can make you feel good about yourself, that can say, look, I've, I've done this better than somebody else. They grumble, but they, they grumble because they begrudge the generosity of the master. They're resentful. And it's a picture, again, of our hearts. We do this too, and here's why. They say, verse 12, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. You've made us equal, and we're not We're better than them. We deserve, we're more deserving than they are. We work 12 hours through the hottest part of the day. And then you went out and hired those lazy people in the very last hour of the day. And they came and worked one hour. Wow, yay for them, one hour. And yet, and it was the best part of the day. It's like when the sun was going down. You know, we worked in Florida in August at one o'clock in the afternoon. And you went out and got some people who came in at twilight at 5.30 and put an hour's worth of work in, and you treated them as if they were the same as us, and it's not fair. And the way the Bible would speak to the way our hearts would do that is with a very simple declaration. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The human heart is relentlessly self-exalting. Pride is competitive, and so we want to stand out. We want to distinguish ourselves. We don't just want to be good. We want to be better than other people. And so we push back against grace. 
Maybe not in our doctrine, but definitely in our behavior and in our feelings and our inner life. Pride, pride doesn't necessarily show up outwardly. When it does, we typically do recoil because it's so ugly, but we tend to excuse it when it's hidden, especially when it's wrapped in the pretty wrapping paper of good works. But what's happening here is there's a tension, and the tension in the text is between the way things work in the world and the way they are in the kingdom. And the kingdom is opposed to all human pride. It belongs to those who welcome grace. And Jesus is just saying, take an inventory of your life and figure out, figure out what, what, you know, which side you're on. Figure out, figure out which in your own heart you value the most. But then what happens is, is in light of that, what we can see, there's something very practical that takes place here. And this is the third point that I want to make is that if, if the world is pure meritocracy and if the kingdom is grace, then Christmas means there's been this cosmic reversal. Something definitive has taken place in the coming of Jesus into the world that makes things work in the universe differently than they did before. We would be God, but God would be us. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. We would be God, but God would be us. We, we would be God. We would ascend and displace God from his place over the universe. That is sin. Salvation is God would be us. God would descend and take on flesh and blood. He would come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life to save his people. The first became the last, an act of cosmic humility that broke the world. And in its wake, see, everything is turned upside down, or perhaps it's finally turned right side up. And so Jesus' parable teaches a very clear lesson that is the summary of all the other lessons in verse 16. It's the statement at the end that everything before it is illustrious of. He says, the last will be first and the first last. Now that's the point. But what exactly does it mean? Let's just finish by by asking that question and and trying to come to an answer. Imagine, and for some of us this may be trauma in our past, and so do the best you can, but imagine being on the playground at school recess, picking teams for a game of kickball. Now, how you feel about that probably, you know, figures into where you are in the hierarchy or where you were at that point. Okay, who's who's the first pick? Probably the biggest kid. I mean, Rick Lear would be my first pick, right, if I'm on the, I mean, I mean, the biggest kid, the fastest, the strongest, the one who's the most athletic, and who's, who's the last pick? The last pick is probably the kid that everybody cheats on in math, right? The clumsy, the slow, the easy out, whichever kid is the easy out. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, because of Christmas, in the real world of the kingdom, that those who would have been picked last will actually finish first. And those who might appear to be the least, by outward reckoning, the untalented, the unpopular, the poor, the weak, the sinful moral failures, they will, when all is said and done, finish ahead of everybody else. And those obvious first-round draft picks, they're going to lose. Now, why? Well, remember, the answer is because God is all and we are nothing. That's the truth of our situation. I mean, that is the truth of life, whether, I mean, whether we realize it or not. That is the truth of our situation. Human pride creates an inverted unreality. It says, I am all and God is nothing, and all that leads to is self-reliance and boasting, which in the end comes to nothing. That's what the Bible's teaching us. But the Bible says that God is opposed to that, in fact. Humility, though, is the source of true strength. And the problem with all those firsts is that they, they find it incredibly hard 
to be humble, not the last so. They have no such delusions, and therefore they are receptacles for God's power. Now let me make two applications of that, and then I'm done. Because we have communion this morning, so we've got to be a little, a little shorter. Let me make two applications. The first comes from the statement Jesus made recorded by Matthew in the very next chapter of his gospel, which is meant to be an illustration of this point, too. He says this, and it's so, um, oh, it's so, what's the word I'm thinking of? It's, it's weird, okay? It's just salacious. He says to, to the religious leaders who are grumbling again about the way things are going in his ministry, Matthew 21, 31, he says, Truly I say to you, religious folks, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Excuse me? Jesus was speaking to the chief priests and the elders, the professional Christians, right? The pastors and ministry leaders, and he said, the moral failures go first into the kingdom. You're at the back of the line. Now, what could that possibly mean? And here's what it means. If you are good, but for some reason you've begun to trust in your goodness and not in God's grace to save you, then your goodness is actually a spiritual liability. What gets you in is not that, it is your need. It's not your spiritual resume. It's your need of grace. And tax collectors and prostitutes, they have no righteousness. That's their spiritual advantage. So if you're here this morning and you're wondering, how does this Christianity thing work? Here it is. Here it is. Jesus has come all the way to you from heaven to earth to the cross, and back to heaven. And all you need, all you need in light of what he's done is nothing. All you need is need because salvation is by grace, not works. So bring your nothing to Jesus. That's the movement of faith, right? Bring your nothing to Jesus. That's the fast pass at Disney. They don't call it fast pass anymore, do they? What do they call it? Genie? Are y'all with me? Hello, you're Central Floridians. Come on, like, you know what the genie thing is? Like the fast pass at Disney, right? If you bring your nothing to Jesus, it's like, whoo, you go right to the front of the line. You might be the least likely candidate. That's an asset, not a liability, because the last will be first and the first last. But here's another application. If you, you might look at yourself and think, what can I do? I mean, really. All I've done my whole life is just mess things up, or I'm a nobody, or... You know, I just go to a job every day that isn't really all that important, or I'm only 13. I mean, what, I mean, really, what contribution can I make? Or, you know, I've just made too many mistakes in my life for God to ever redeem them and, and, and turn things around. The kingdom is the anti meritocracy. The qualities and the, success and, the, and the successes that get you ahead in the world, they are the very things that keep you back in the kingdom. What we normally judge, a success in the final judgment from heaven's perspective will often be seen as failure, and what appeared in the moment to be weakness and even defeat might actually be victory in the end. The most dazzling person that you meet in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again will have been largely unknown throughout her life. She may have had no high or exalted position. His influence might have seemed small and insignificant, but they brought forth the quiet and almost unnoticed fruits of the Spirit Leading a quiet and godly life in all modesty and temperance, they performed their tasks in the small corner of the kingdom that was theirs without grumbling, but the work they did was not their own because they were relying on God's strength and not theirs. And therefore, it was a work of God shining brightly through them because the last will be first and the first will be last.
Isn't that great news? And so if you're here this morning and you say, gosh, I feel that pride in me welling up, let this humble you. If you're here this morning and you feel beat up, beaten to a pulp in a million pieces, let this encourage you. And say, in either case, with the hymn writer, when he said, this is Jesus' words to us, Jesus saying to us, thy whole dependence on me fix, nor entertain a thought, thy worthless schemes with mine to mix, but venture to be naught. Fond self-direction is a shelf, thy strength, thy wisdom flee. When thou art nothing in thyself, then thou art close to me. Amen? Pray with me, if you would, as we prepare to come to this table together this morning. So, Father, just that we ask, that you would work by your spirit in our hearts, that we would venture to be not, that we would be nothing in our own eyes, that you might be all, that we might be close to you, trusting indeed that the first are last and the last are first, and we pray it in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Listen, I will admit, when I looked and saw what we were singing this week, I thought, I wonder why we're singing that song at the end. I totally get it now, man. I'm so sorry. Like, dumb, stupid me. I should have known better. Listen, here's the good news. You may not be worthy, but there is one who is worthy, right? And because he is worthy, if your faith is in him, and if you humbly go from this place not trusting in yourself, but trusting in his power and his love to save, then you can be sure of the promise of this benediction. These words are yours, and so receive them in faith and go humbly serving wherever he sends you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Come tonight and celebrate with us at 5 o'clock at Grove Roots. <laughs>